Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I am very excited to welcome my guest today, Cadwell Turnbull, who is the author of a book that I uh, raved about quite a bit on my blog. Um, And so those of you who follow will probably already know that I was a big fan of his most recent novel, No Gods, No Monsters, which is what we're mostly going to be talking about today, because I admit I haven't gotten around to uh, reading your debut novel yet, The Lesson. I will be reading it soon. no worries <laughs> it's really great um but uh you're a science fiction and i consider this novel to be science fiction and horror kind of like in that clive barker dark fantasy kind of thing uh but uh you've been uh nominated for a few awards and um uh the lesson was a big hit so uh thank you for joining me today on postcards from a dying world very excited to have you here Thank you for having me. Now, where did you grow up and how did you get into genre of fiction? I know I ask everybody this, but you kind of, we kind of have one. I always am interested in how people's geography and where they grew up kind of like turn them into the people that they are. Well, I grew up in the Virgin Islands, um, St. Thomas to be specific. There's, there's um, some scenes in the novel, no gods that are set back home. And then, you know, the lesson is set primarily on St. Thomas as well. I don't know how it happened. I guess um, my mom was kind of a science nerd. She, she watches a lot of science fiction, like films and TV shows, and I would watch them with her. She, she had a collection of VHS tapes and a lot of Star Trek movies. And so I watched that with her. And, you know, she's just a, she's just a fan of the genre. Um, and so... Watching that with her, watching watching TV shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Charmed and um, Stargate SG-1, I got interested in genre by watching too much TV, honestly. And then when I got to college, um, a friend of mine put me on to um, Ursula Le Guin, read a few books from her, um, read my favorite book of all time, The Dispossessed, as a recommendation from this friend, um, and kind of started playing around in the genre and didn't look back from there. So um, watched a lot of TV, then read some science fiction when I got a little bit older. Now we'll, we'll come back to Le Guin and The Dispossessed because it's all over this book. Uh, in in uh, Easter right. eggs and more direct things. Uh, I'm obviously a huge fan of Le Guin and The Dispossessed. Uh, uh, and I think it has a lot to do with the world that this book um, kind of takes place in so we'll come back to that but um, well that's awesome like a, a lot of times uh, some some people don't want to admit how much of it was sitting down and watching TV but of course <laughs> that was for, for me too um, I'm more of a Stargate Atlantis fan than SG ah, I love Stargate Atlantis too yeah and I thought Universe yeah. was, was underrated and I thought it was really cool they were doing I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I wish it went on for longer, for sure. Yeah, totally. So I, I'm, 
I, uh, there's no snobbery here. I just want to, <laughs> to be clear uh, because uh, I definitely um, enjoy, you know, watching Star Trek when I was a little kid was how I got interested in space and, and all this as well. And I still consider myself a Trekker to this day. But, um, and anybody who listens to this podcast knows this because I do this, uh, lots of Star Trek talk on here. But uh, that's really cool. And But you think Le Guin was kind of one of those foundational writers for you. Uh, are there any other writers that when you got into it in college that you consider foundational besides Le Guin? No, it's really Le Guin. When I was in high school, we read, you know, the, the classics, the, the classics that you don't know are spec until much later. So we read A Brave New World um, and 1984. 1984 is one of my favorite books as well. It's just super, super depressing. Um, but at the time, I didn't know it was spec. It was in my mind, you know, treated as a literary classics book. But there's, it's, it's definitely a spec book. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I also um, named that as an influence. Um, I mean, generally because it was focused on politics and social systems. And I think that's one of the reasons I really like Le Guin as well. Um, as I got older, I got into Butler and Butler is also a huge influence, but I have to admit that was later on. It wasn't, you know, that, that wasn't where I arrived at first, but Butler is a huge influence. Um, now I would say um, authors like N.K. Jameson and Ted Chang are also influences of mine. Um, really, you know, growing fan, big fan of Emily St. John Mandel. Um, so all over the place now, but it started, I think, pretty much with Orwell Le Guin. Right. Well, that's cool. Um, and so where did you go to college again? I, I'm sorry, I, I may, may have missed that part. Well, no, I didn't say it. Um, I went to La Roche University. At the time, it was a college. It was a um, small, it's still a small university, but now it's, it, it got um, upgraded. And that was in Pittsburgh, in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. Oh, it was, cool. um, I, um, yeah. My father went to grad school at Pitt, so uh, we spent a lot of time, uh, we'd, we'd visit Pittsburgh a lot. My dad was a lifelong Pittsburgh sports guy, so. Uh, I got uh, forced to watch lots of. <laughs> but, oh, that's awesome! <laughs> well, not the forced part. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah I, I love that city. Yeah, well, Pittsburgh is an underrated city as far as um, uh, there was a lot of cool stuff going on there. Uh, cool bands, restaurants, things started by like by people who grew up there and wanted to make Pittsburgh a better place. Um, and uh, I, I'm familiar with some a little bit of that, but is that where you got uh, interested in um, anarchist organizing? Because that that is also a theme that kind of is is throughout this book. Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. So the friend that recommended Le Guin to me, and the first book that she recommended was The Loth of Heaven, um, which is a really great book. It's also, it also shows up in No Gods, No Monsters. Um, and she was an anarchist. And um, when I was there, I did some, um, I think it was like extra credit work um, at the Thomas Merton Center, which was like a, you know, political activist organization. They had a newspaper called The New People. They were very, very left. Um, and so did some work there, 
got into some, you know, some organizing from that. But um, yeah, I think a lot of it has just grown out of, you know, being friends with anarchists or, or reading about it or reading fiction that was influenced by it. Um, my, my own, my own feelings are, I'm very much ideologically aligned. I wouldn't say that I consider myself and, you know, look, Wynne talked about this too. I don't think she said, you know, she was an activist, but she was influenced by the ideology. And I would say that's the same with me. Um, yeah, I just it just makes more sense to me than anything else. <laughs> so it shows up a lot in in work that I do. Well, what's kind of funny about how committed to Liquid anarchists are, uh, because a lot of people discover the dispossessed and Liquid through anarchists recommending the book to them. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people, which is you know, and I have a couple thoughts on that. But one of the funny things is is that. From a site from an old school science fiction nerd perspective, Norman Spinrad was much more vocal about being an anarchist, and he wrote anarchist novels like uh, *The Void Captain's Tale*, for example, but never got the attention for being an anarchist that Le Guin got, and that's partially because Le Guin wrote a better book. <laughs> you know, as much as I love Spinrad, and I'm a big fan of his, *The Dispossessed* is just an amazing novel. It is, it is. The one thing that I will point anarchists to is that the dispossessed is like Anarchism 101, and if people make it to Always Coming Home, your novel Always Coming Home is like a a master class on anarchism, in my opinion. That book has been on my list forever. Like, I I really, I was just talking to someone on Twitter recently. I really want to read everything she's written. Um, the, the only reason I haven't read that book yet is because it's huge. <laughs> it's kind of intimidating. Yeah. I will say it is not a great novel and it's not a fun novel, but just for anarchist ideas, mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a masterclass. And that's one of the reasons why people don't read it quite as often because it's not, it's, it, it doesn't tell as good of a story as it says. But as far as just right. anarchist thinking, it's really great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's the one, uh, Always Coming Home is the one where you can tell that she had famous anthropologist parents. Um, <laughs> you know, for sure. Reading, yeah, reading the description for it, you can you can tell she's being influenced by the, that, the real work, the, you know, of, of doing that kind of stuff and then marrying that with, you know, science fiction is, is really kind of cool. Well, I need to rewind a little bit, I think, here. Um, and... Um, you know, coming from, from the Virgin Islands, did you come here for college or did you move here like earlier than that? Um, yeah, I came for college. Awesome. Well, yeah. Um, well, Karen Lord, obviously being like a very famous writer um, uh, from, from coming from a, a Caribbean background, it's not, you know, it's not, you're not the first one to do it, but um, it is a unique perspective in that you bring something to to, um, to not just this novel, but to the genre, like that perspective. I'm sure coming uh, at, uh, to the States, uh, also to a whole new perspective around the time you were learning to read genre um, fiction probably had a huge influence on, on like 
how you viewed politics in our country, right? Yeah, no, it, it does. Yeah. And I, I'm definitely um, influenced as well by other Caribbean writers. Karen Lloyd is one of them. Um, Nala Hopkinson is also another writer um, that I that I greatly admire. Um, I would say it's one of those things, right? You you read something and there's a character in the book that's like this. Um, he starts reading about anarchism and then he realizes that that's what he is, <laughs> you know, like it's, it wasn't a thing that I feel like I always felt that way. It's, it was reading that confirmed things for me that was feelings, internal feelings that I had um, that I didn't know how to name. I just could feel that something was wrong um, with just, you know, how we, how we, you know, organized society. And so, you know, when I started reading um, writers like Le Guin, um, it, it became apparent that this was the, the feeling that I was having that I couldn't name. And so, yeah, I, I do think that moving away, um, and, I, and I did that deliberately. I, I did want to get out of, you know, St. Thomas is a very small place. I, I wanted to go somewhere else and experience um, snow for example, <laughs> you know, um, and so, you know, yeah, it, it did. It was, it, it was quite an experience. You know what? I, I've told people this before. It's, it's kind of strange, but, um, I remember the first time I looked outside and it was a sunny day, like the sun was out, there was no clouds in the sky and it was cold. It was the first time I experienced a sunny day that was cold. Um, and it was extremely jarring for me. Um, but yeah, I wanted, I wanted to get out of, you know, my comfort zone. And, and so I did and, you know, ended up finding, you know, a love of genre and a love of, you know, writers like Le Guin that, you know, kind of pushed my thinking on certain things and confirmed some other things for me. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. The, and the Le Guin Easter eggs and that I'm a person that as soon as I saw the name of the bookstore in, in the novel, I knew exactly what you were talking about because I am a dispossessed fan. Um, and I and I did say that I kind of wish that that had stayed, you know, just for the people who knew. Um, mm. But I understand that um, that uh, now from talking to you that you were expressing a part of your story and kind of the autobiographical parts of the book that Le Guin was kind of was, was important. And, and then I kept and then I told I had to remind myself that that it, it's not about me and that it's good for <laughs> other people to learn about the win. Because I'm sure you will teach people that, that there will be people who will find the win from your book. Um, mm. you know, and that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean I know I know for other people, um, Le Guin is pretty basic, but not for me. It was it was definitely a thing where I grew up in a place that was not, there, there was not a bunch of science fiction books lying around. And there was not a lot of um, science fiction books that were talking about really interesting and amazing politics lying around. When Le Guin came to me, it blew my mind. I did not know that that was that, it felt like a whole world had opened up. And so, you know, that does make it into the book. I evangelize a lot. It seems super basic to some people, but to me, it was like, it was extremely formative. Yeah. Well. Um... And I just finished reading a nonfiction book about his life, but for me, I'm the same way with uh, John Bruder, um, mm -hmm. who's a British science fiction writer. And um, his novel, Stand on Zanzibar, in my opinion, is 
the greatest science fiction novel of the 20th century. I'm almost evangelical about, about Bruner. Uh, even though I do a Philip K. Dick podcast, my other podcast, <laughs> if I'm pressed, I will say that John Bruner is the, is the best science fiction writer of the 20th century, in my opinion. Although, wow. Yeah. Well, and Le Guin's up there, obviously. She's in the top five um, for me. But uh, And what's really cool, too, is in the next month, I'm going up to the Bay Area to go with a scholar friend of mine to visit all, like, the Bill K. Dick sites, the places he lived, his childhood home. And we're going to Le Guin's childhood home as well. Because a lot of people... That's so dope. Yeah, what's really cool is that Philip K. Dick and Ursula Le Guin went to high school together. Uh, at Berkeley High. That's impossible. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, one year apart, and they didn't know each other. They did not insane. Know yeah, it's very crazy. So, I'll uh, I'll send you pictures from from the home. Uh, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, jealous. Yeah, um, I'm really excited about the trip, but I do think that the the teaching the history uh, of Le Guin, specifically for what you were saying, is somebody who can, can be revolutionary, who can open your eyes to these things. It's it's a really good way to give back in fiction, to um, to include them because there will be, especially younger people, who will be finding these books don't know who Ursula Le Guin is. So um, I appreciate that part of this book. So let's talk Thanks. about how how you got into writing, and then we'll come back around to No Gods No Monsters. We're geeking out a little. We're doing side quests here. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> how did you take seriously writing? Was that in college or after college? Because I'm sure it has to do with, if you weren't reading the genre seriously, you probably hadn't started writing it. Well, no, I, I started writing before college. So I, I wrote in high school. Um, I have a, you know, a kind of corny story for how I started, you know, thinking about being a writer, but it um when i when i did start it was i was reading a lot of urban fiction because that was what my my sister had around the house i was picking up her books and reading them and and digging them and then started writing like urban fiction books basically just um i want to say book stories that i tried to expand into novels but never got to novel um um about people in their 20s having complications with dating you know, driving around a lot, not having real jobs. Like no one had jobs in my stories. <laughs> they just kind of drive to each other's houses and have like, you know, emotional conversations. And, um, um, but I was, you know, in high school reading things that I didn't know was spec at the time, but was spec. And I started writing in college, uh, a fantasy book that never went anywhere. And that's when I started reading spec, but I was writing from before. I was writing fiction too, but it was um, not the fiction that I ended up writing. Got it. And, and so was it in college that you started taking seriously writing speculative fiction or that, that's when that happened, right? I, yes, you know, stages are serious. So serious in undergrad um, to the extent that I was actually trying to write um, you know, spec, um, ser really serious in graduate school is when I tried to like nail down the craft of writing a good spec story. Like the, the stuff I was writing undergrad were, was not, you know, it was, no, it was not good. Um, but 
in grad school, I, you know, I was making a good effort to, to write, you know, good stories that also had, you know, speculative ideas and, you know, figuring out not, figuring out ways to not have all my characters just spouting, you know, philosophical musings all the time, you know, which was pretty much my undergrad stories. Lots of people sharing the ideologies. Um, yeah. And, um, first novel, The Lesson, was that your first serious attempt at, at a novel, or do you have a couple drunk novels that a lot of writers have the novels they don't want ever to get out in their first attempt? Right. I'm, I'm actually currently revising a drunk novel, um, you know, I'm working on this new concept, and I'm, I'm working with some other authors, and, you know, one project that we're doing is kind of reviving you know dead books but turning them into something different through this this meta narrative that we've co-created together and so I'm, I'm working on that um it is a terrible book but i'm hoping by the end of it that it'll be so there'll be at least be i don't so know terrible. it will be not so terrible it might not end up being a novel it might end up being a novella i have to cut so much but um i'm hoping i'm hopeful that it'll be it'll be relatively decent by the time we're done with it. But yeah, I hope so. I hope something went into that. Um, the lesson the lesson was my first attempt at uh, a serious book and it wasn't always a book. It, it kind of became a book as I was working on it. I didn't know what it was at first. Yeah, I know that sometimes writer, uh, non-writers don't understand. Like I have a novel that I realized two thirds of the way through that it wasn't working, that it, w- it would not work, but I finished it anyways, just for my peace of mind. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I went ahead and finished it, even though I was like, I was, I knew I was gonna get, not going to do anything with it. I just said, I'm going to finish this. And then partially because I thought that maybe someday, maybe I'll figure out a way to fix it and I'll have the, the skeleton of it. But so was the lesson your second attempt or? Was it down the line? Hmm. Um, I think technically my third. I I tried writing a novel in 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 high school, but it was um again urban fiction. And then I tried writing a fantasy novel in in undergrad and got pretty far. I got like sixty thousand words in. Um. And then started working on a lesson and didn't know. I kind of given up on. On, on novels for a while because of that failed attempt. So I was working on stories for a while. And then um, over time was working in this particular world, this, this story world a lot and developing it. And, you know, my advisors at the time um, told me that I had a novel <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't know that's what I was doing. And then started thinking about it and thinking about if this was a novel, what would it be doing and where would it be going? And there was a lot of seeds that were being set up in the work that I was um, working on. So, you know, kind of just followed, followed my gut there and got, got the lesson. Wow. That's cool. And, um, and sold it and found a home for it and got it out there. So, uh, yeah, all surprises. How do you feel about that novel now? Um, like, obviously, I haven't read it yet. It's it's on my list. I uh, my my the way I do things is 
once I decide I'm going to read a novel, I try to forget what it's about so I can go into the cold, so I don't read the dust jacket or anything again. Like once I, for whatever reason, I knew months ago I decided I wanted to read this, and then mm-hmm. now I'll go into a cold. So I don't remember very much about what it. I know that it's science fiction, and um, but other than that, I've been trying to keep myself cool. But you can spoil it for me again. But uh, uh, but what what was the genesis of this book? Uh, well, it's it's a first contact novel, so it's um, aliens, <laughs> aliens in the Virgin Islands, basically, you know. And it was inspired by a dream. Like I, I had this, I don't know, dream slash nightmare. I don't know, you know. It was it was one of those dreams, you know. My wife has a ton of vivid dreams that she remembers when she wakes up, but I tend to forget most of my dreams. This one was really vivid, and I remembered most of it, and it was a, you know small town somewhere aliens were living among people and they looked just like people but they had like this big cultural difference where they they were very i don't know um they perceived most things as threats (laughs) they were they were they just had a heightened sense of what was threatening and if you did something that they that they thought was threatening, they would respond with extreme violence. And it was kind of like this kind of impulsive reaction that was deeply culturally ingrained. And it was about this one woman alien that was trying to change, but having some challenges changing. <laughs> um, you know, she still had that same knee-jerk response but was trying to work through it and had a lot of guilt around it. And it was just such a vivid dream that it just stuck with me for years. And eventually I was like, I want to write this story, but I want to set it in the Virgin Islands because it was set in some like suburban town somewhere. Um, And so I I changed the setting and then all of these other things came up. And that very first story was just like, those original characters transplanted to the Virgin Islands and, uh, you know, very quiet. And then I just started getting more and more curious about that world and started building out from there. Um, but it, you know, general premises, um, first contact aliens show up that are, that have this kind of response to, you know, heightened threat, you know, um, threat response and how that causes, you know, tensions within the community and, that sort of thing. Sounds great. Um, I, I I did read a lot about it uh, right after I read No Gods No Monsters. It sounded great. Um, now, so for No Gods No Monsters, your your follow up, you kind of went a different direction. Was there any um, uh, hesitancy to going more dark fantasy or, or going horror? Or yeah, yeah. No. No, I, I didn't, you know, before, you know, I, I attended Clarion West, which is, you know, uh, you know, um, a science fiction fantasy workshop, you attend for six weeks. It's, it's the one in, in, um, in Seattle. Right. Yeah. And so, um, before that I hadn't written horror, but I would say that bits of the lesson as I was working on it were horror influence and I just didn't realize it. You know, I just, I write lots of tension and lots of creepiness, but not, not intentionally. <laughs> um, and so I, I dabbled a bit in horror for the first time when I was at that workshop and found that I really liked it. Um, 
but you know i had been writing short stories that were fantasy science fiction slipstream you know magical realist all over the place for a while so it just seemed natural to me to write i just write in all of the genres all of the spec genres so when i when i was working on this one i was like oh i want to try that genre i hadn't written anything in that genre you know so i was like let me try it and see what happens now one author you have not mentioned um but I'm going to make this comparison because I know a lot of my listeners are are fans of Clive Barker, but um, the comparison um, with the, not only the dark fantasy kind of, um, horror vibe, it has a, this novel has a real like 90s Clive Barker, like Great Secret Show, Everville feel, which to me is a great compliment. <laughs> um, but the one that obviously is going to get is going to draw some comparisons because of uh, the similar kinds of themes as Cabal and Nightbreed, um, being that, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, that book is about monster, about discrimination and monsters being, you know, the real monsters being the humans and, 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 and that kind of, kind of thing. And I wasn't sure if Clyde Barker was an influence, but it was definitely like, you know, I think readers want to have comps all the time. They want to hear like, oh, this is like this and this. I really think this book will appeal to fans of Nightbreed and Cabal. Like, and and um, whether, I don't know if you read Clyde Parker. I don't know. But um, that's a book that um, I think people have always wanted to have more monster books to like it. You know, because it's, it's, it's and, well, they're very different books. They're, I'm not saying this is, you know, super close, but it's it, in themes it's very similar. Is, is Clive Barker an influence at all? Or have you read much Clive Barker? Or am I pulling that out of out of the ether? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I have heard I have heard of Clive Barker um, from from horror fr- from horror horror friends that read Clive Barker and have been influenced by Clive Barker, and so I've. He's come up a lot in conversations. I've been meaning to read it. And um, um, yeah, and now I'm very, very interested in those two novels in particular. I'm going to actually like ping you so you can give me those. Is it, it's Cabal, right? Cabal is the, Cabal is the one that is, is the, the closest. That, that, um, he adapted it into a movie, Nightbreed. Um, oh, dope. Yeah, and... Uh, there was a lot of studio fuckery, so I would recommend reading reading the book first. Um, okay. But uh, it, no gods, no monsters, and Cabal um, are very similarly themed, um, uh, in the sense of. And one of the things you have to remember about Clive Barker is, uh, you know, he made he became famous in the '80s as as a horror writer, and he was like the first out and openly openly super out gay horror writer who didn't give a shit, right? What anybody thought of him. And um, Cabal is definitely um, kind of inspired by that, like, I don't feel comfortable in society kind of thing. But also he he was tired of as a guy who grew up loving monsters, of monsters always being the villains. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you'll, you'll see. Um, that's why one of the reasons why immediately when I read this book, I was like, oh man, this, this is for fans of Cabal and Nightbreed for, for sure. 
so that's super that cool and i think with your taste you will really the the, the tone comparison uh with clive barker is his uh, novel the great secret show uh, which is um you'll see like what i'm talking about as far as tone if you, if you do um you read it and there is a sequel called Everville, and I feel, the one thing that I kind of feel bad recommending these books to you is that he's never finished the third book. Um, <laughs> the curse! <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I uh, I was at an awards dinner um, and they sat all the vegetarians together so we sat at the table with him and I got to um, hear him talk about the third book but he never wrote it. So, and I, it's like one of those times where I'm like, I wish I was, I had written this down, but <laughs> he uh, just never was able to, to, to bring it for, but I, I highly recommend uh, for, for, also for fans of this book who might be coming to this podcast as your fans, that they, they would enjoy it as well. So anyways, enough about Clive Barker, back to No Gods, No Monsters. Um, <laughs> So there will be a point where I'll give a spoiler warning and we'll get really nitty gritty on it. But um, where did this um, idea originate? Um, obviously, I, I feel like some of the anarchist uh, organizers that you were friends with, sounds like Lucifer, were probably a huge part of this, um, of where this started or where this idea came from. But um, yeah, where did No Gods, No Monsters originate? uh that's a big question it's yeah. right. <laughs> a ton of different influences so one of them you know is is um you know shows like buffy the vampire slayer i also you know really like you know fantasy dark fantasy stuff um and supernatural stuff and um wanted to write in the genre but didn't start reading urban fantasy until fairly recently um and so got into reading urban fantasy, was a, was a big fan of urban fantasy in, you know, in TV and film, you know, one of my, you know, favorite films, you know, growing up was Underworld. I just love that movie. <laughs> I love all, and I even love the bad sequels. So, you know what I mean? Like it's, I'm a huge fan of this kind of like secret world of, of monsters meeting other monsters and duking it out, you know, you know, you know, at war with each other for various reasons. And, you know, the, the human world kind of only is half aware that that's going on and, you know, that kind of stuff. So just being a fan mind. of that. You're going to lose your mind for the ball, believe me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, being, being a huge fan of that kind of stuff and then, um, you know, getting interested. So, you know, starting out, you know, pretty much when I was in Pittsburgh, being interested in anarchism and, you know, lefty, you know, um, political ideologies generally um, got, you know, you know, during grad school got interested in cooperatives and, you know, just kind of like applied um, radical politics. So like taking, taking, you know, consensus um, decision making and putting that with businesses and housing and all of this stuff. And um, got in, got you know a little involved in like you know you know cooperative you know activism. Joined a collective that was about like um, publishing a you know you know um, 
articles and essays about cooperatives and you know, a lot of cooperative organizers that were a part of of the collective as well and so you know pulling a lot of that just interest into it so it was like monsters but the monsters aren't bad guys um co-op stuff and the influences for that my own reading you know being being a spec person and you know loving Le Guin and all that stuff so I was like bring that in and then you know the the other part of it um this kind of like you know shadow society stuff that you know I find really interesting in in um in media and tv film books and bringing that in as well and pairing it with um cosmology that I've been like you know metaphysical stuff that I've been interested in for a really long time and building out in my head that that I couldn't you know it just didn't work every time I tried to put it in a story and for some reason it just worked with no gods no monsters there was just like there was just enough weirdness happening already that some of the other weirdness kind of jived with it so what's awesome for me with this book is that you're talking about a lot of different influences a lot of different things and they 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 melt together really well in this book it it, it all comes together in in, in a really great way and um, I think it's a good lesson for for younger writers who like you can do all these elements if you're uh, paying attention to the story and how it threads together so we'll get more into that because I like to nerd out about narrative construction um, okay <laughs> so we'll get into that the inciting incident of the book was um the murder of an innocent person by um i believe it was boston cops right that and, and what i thought was really interesting about what this and i'm, I'm currently writing a, um, an article about what the horror novels of 2020 say about the year we all experienced right the ones that accidentally came out at that time. But it seems to me, you talk about this fracture effect in the book. There's a concept that this inciting incident, and, and keep in mind, we were all traumatized in 2020 by like living through the whole world watched George Floyd get murdered, right? And it became this thing that changed everything. Um, you were probably writing this book long before that happened. But this concept of the whole world changing because of this inciting incident seemed to be speaking to that moment in history, to me, anyways. And that's something that I really enjoyed about the inciting incident of the book. So, the fracture effect. Can you explain what that is in the book? Right. Um, the basic idea is that a thing happens. And it's so out of the ordinary and strange that people split, you know, like, you know, depending on where you are um, politically or ideologically, just your experiences as a person, you split, you know, along different lines. You either believe the thing is real or you, you don't believe it. And, you, you know, each one, each group has their reasons and justifications for taking their side, but it's very much that the society is split in half about it. It's not, it's um, a moment in time where there is not a consensus on reality. Like reality is new and different in some way, but we have not agreed on what it is. Um, 
and right 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 i feel like there's there's a lot of you know comparisons you can draw and at the time i was like are people gonna buy this this kind of you know this you know at first i was thinking oh everyone believed it right away and i was like no no that's not gonna happen it's it's too big of a thing for everyone to believe you know this idea that monsters are 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 real and so, you know, I started playing around with this idea that, well, there's a split and the split has like a lot of underlying psychological effects, but it's it's hard to pin down. And um, I thought people wouldn't believe it and it would be, you know, a strange idea, but, you know, the pandemic happened and we know how, you know, we don't align on reality when it comes to, you know, these, these kinds of things. And this, this is a really good example of it, but there's been other things in the past. Um, I think the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial is a prime example of how it's like a Rorschach test for for you know how people view what happened. And so that was something that I thought was really brilliant in this film. So um, I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, that was a really smart narrative decision, and it and it branched out really interesting things where some people like believe that the monsters are here, and some are like trying very hard to like see no evil, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And, and I thought it was it was really cool. And in that way, um, your monsters are a little bit subtler than than uh, you know they're not like kaiju's walking around, <laughs> right? You know, but um, and it's funny because I kind of jokingly said that this was an anarchist werewolf novel um, because I thought that that would, and the reason I did that was because I thought, well, that'll get people's attention if I say it's an anarchist werewolf novel, and then people will come to my review and then see that, and it's not inaccurate, <laughs> but that, um, but you said when when I posted my review that a lot of people were not talking about the anarchist politics of it and that surprised me because that's such a huge part of this book to me like um, is it are you having the experience that people are not noticing that as much as the other parts of the story well i mean some people notice it a lot um and they you know they talk about it and but most people don't notice it much and but there's enough things going on in a book that I feel like you know I've I've paid attention to some reviews and you know reviews kind of decide they pick what they're going to focus on and they talk a lot about that thing and so it's um you know anarchism tends to be the thing that is put to the side often in reviews now narrative wise Mm. there's lots of characters here and you uh um, there's a couple times that the POV shifted where I had to kind of slow down and reread things just to be like, okay, who am I with? Which is fine. I actually think that's great um, because um, I'm a no not I don't like filler, so I don't like a lot of info dump. So I'd rather go back and be like, okay, where am I? Um, but you also have the perspective of where some of your characters go back to the islands. Some of them, uh, you know, seeing the situation so, so you have a lot of different perspectives and point of views um is there do you how do you uh, determine the 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 rhythm of of where you're going with which characters and what point of view it's like and why did you just 
I mean, for, first of all, I, I'm not a fan of first person, so I prefer, prefer when we can go through different characters to multiple point of views, but um, what what was the importance of the multiple point of views in this one? Uh, the lesson is also a multi-POV book. Um, I I just do it, <laughs> you know, it's one, that's, you know, the, the simple, most honest answer is my brain goes in that direction. But, you know, honestly, when I started working on the lesson and I, you know, it became this kind of like um, multi-POV looking at a moment in, in, in history where there's a significant, you know, event that causes social change. This tends to be the thing that I also like, no gods and monsters in the lessons share that in common. There's a thing that happens and then a bunch of people respond to it in their personal lives and then it has effects in the world and exploring the effects of that event through a lot of different people's POVs and filtering that through people's experiences. That that to me is really interesting. Um, But, you know, the big thing I what I like about that is it allows it allows to tell. It allows me to tell a story where there's not a single person that is responsible for X happening. You know that it there. There's not um, a protagonist. It's not a hero that saves the world. In my mind, the way that the world actually changes is messier, where there's a lot of interacting groups with their own agendas that um, that hit up against each other in a moment of great change. And then through that change become, the world becomes something new, you know? And so um, No Gods, No Monsters, and the, you know, it's a trilogy. So hopefully I finished this trilogy. <laughs> when you brought up Clive Barker, I was like, oh no, don't say that. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's very much for me trying to like, you know, trace um, a moment of great change where a bunch of different, you know, opposing factions are hitting up against each other as these things are happening, you know, and by the end of it, the world will be very different, but it won't be because one person was a hero. You know, it would be because, you know, culture and and personal motivations and ideology and and loss and and trauma, all these things are kind of creating a stew where change is also happening. And you know, that's why I think it's really important to just, you know, have books. You know, if, if, if I'm trying to justify my own habit here, um, it's it feels like a good idea to have books that, you know, treat, you know, perspective as a feature of the book. Like it's important to show different perspectives and how that, that difference creates momentum in a story. Well, what I think is really cool is this is an origin story. In many ways, but it, it has so many profound moments that it doesn't it, it doesn't entirely feel like it feels like a closed book. That that if I I didn't I I'm obviously interested. And I want to read more, and I can see where you're setting up the world for deeper things. But it's cool to have an origin story that's as profound as it is. And the last thing that I want to say before I get into spoilers, um, before we get nitty gritty on things, is that. Another thing that I really appreciate is the, about the book and one thing that I want to, to sell to people who maybe haven't read it yet is that um, you write great cosmic horror in, in, um, in tiny moments of, um, and I know you mentioned cosmology as, as a thing, and there is, um, 
there is that influence here. It's mostly in subtle moments. It's not like, not like Lovecraft where it's the entire plot of, of a story, right? But there are these moments where you get this grand cosmic scale. What I, what I thought was really neat about that is that's where you really feel that you're in an origin story. And I got, I thought that did a really good job of making me as a reader feel like there's a wider universe and there's bigger and grander things to come. Am I correct about that? <laughs> because, uh, you know, you got two more books to go, but I felt like those moments of cosmic horror were kind of prelude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So the way that I imagine the trilogy in terms of focus um, going is, you know, the first book is about people where there's some intersection with the monsters. And then the second book is the monster book. And then the third book is the, is the gods, you know, that there's, there's no, you know, if you're paying attention to this book, you know, there's gods all over the place, you know, and they have their own narrative. They have their own conflicts and that stuff is kind of hitting up against the human world and the humans are catching like the tail ends of things. They're like, you know, there's this, this massive ice iceberg of, cosmic stuff happening and you know occasionally you know in one scene they're at like a you know like a collective meeting <laughs> you know they hit up against it you know and they don't know what they're looking at um even some of the monsters don't know what they're looking at but it's it's we'll, there we'll, we'll drill down on that in spoilers okay okay <laughs> uh, right yeah so anything last you want to say before we get into spoilers for for anyone who maybe has not read the book yet because People could definitely pause before we get to spoilers, go buy the book, read it, come back, finish the episode. But um, last sales pitch for anyone who uh, has not read No Gods, No, no Monsters yet. I'm a terrible salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> then hopefully I did. I, I'm, I'm hoping I sold it pretty well. And I'm I think... telling you, saying anarchist werewolf gets people's attention because, uh, you know, even though I know there's more monsters than, than, than the shapeshifters, mm -hmm. I think that that gets people's attention. So. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely that going on. Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, here's your spoiler warning. So you can pause the episode if you haven't read it. If you have uh, read it, stick around. So we're going to get more into things. So now let's talk about that. Um, safe space is a really important thing in, in anarchist communities and providing safe space. And I think the safe space for monsters theme kind of comes up in chapter 36 when, when there's this collective meeting. And for somebody who's been a part of anarchist collective meetings where I had to wait on the stack, I had to raise my hand, and, and, and where we were trying to make business decisions based on consensus, which is super hard to do, um, but rewarding, mm -hmm. right? This idea that there is this scene where they're advocating for monsters um, and against discrimination in this anarchist collective meeting was was um, obviously hit home for me, and, and I loved this chapter. So maybe we can. And now you don't have to worry. At this point, we're assuming everyone's read it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm I'm glad that that resonated because that that chapter is. It's strange for a lot of people, <laughs> but being a part of a collective, doing collective stuff, I, you know, it's one of those things that I was just like, this has to show up somehow. And, you know, marrying that kind of like 
that kind of like, you know, I don't want to say long-winded, but like, you know, it, it takes, it takes a lot of work to talk through things in this form, you know? And so the kind of dry um, affair of talking through a thing and all of the ramifications of a thing where everyone gets to speak on it and, and feel heard and come to some kind of agreement on what's, what's the most comfortable approach for everyone um, was something I really wanted to do while having this kind of like rumbling thing going on in the background and then like having all of these things crash in on each other at once. To me, that's like the biggest moment in the book, even though it doesn't happen. Um, you know, it's not the climax at all, but in my mind, that's where all of the forces combine. You know, all of the elements of the book are in one place in that scene. And um, it becomes this big like meeting point and yeah, you know, it was fun. Bert, as somebody who, you know, uh, I was a part of a campaign where we, in my small college town that I grew up in, we stopped a golf course from being built in one of the last green spaces. And we organized the entire campaign through anarchist principles of census. And so I've been in a lot of really intense meetings where, where, where you're doing it that way. And I think for those of us who have, have seen or made major change that way, uh, uh, it, it is super meaningful um, to see because you and I both know that there's a certain power to how um, democracy works that way when you're giving everyone a voice and you're not giving up until everyone feels comfortable, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right, right. And, and so that's one of the reasons why that, that novel or this novel and that chapter, I get it, I get it. That's, that's because it, it's such an important moment um, for how these people interact with this new reality. It's, it's, it's very powerful stuff. And I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, and so um, there's also a scene. Okay, so you have a lot of monsters, not just, I know I keep picking on the werewolves, but there's skin shedders and there's all kinds of things. How did you kind of... Um, I mean, you must have had a lot of fun devising that culture. Did you, that monster kind of culture and, and who was there, was that by the seat of your pants or did you plan that out ahead of time? Um, a bit of both. So, you know, I, I knew that, you know, I've been reading a lot of shifter books. So I knew that I wanted to write, you know, shifters and there's more than there's werewolf shifters but there's also other shifters and this book that I'm working on now explores some other you know kinds of shifters but I know I wanted to do the shifters I know I I wanted vampires but to to not activate them yet so that they're, they're kind of just hanging out in the background um I you know there's a, but I also knew I wanted to do like Caribbean folklore and so like um you know pulling in some some stories that I've heard as, as a kid and making those a feature of the book, making those a part of the book as well was something I was excited about. And then, you know, there was some other things that came about through the mechanics of how the magic works, which isn't, isn't a part of this book. It's only like vaguely hinted at, but um, some of the monsters that existed and they call themselves monsters out of solidarity, but like there's like witches and mages and you know, those aren't monsters, you know, the way that we think about them, but they're, they are from the magical realm and um, they call themselves monsters of solidarity. And 
that stuff kind of came organically out of me thinking about the magic system. And then there's some other things that just kind of was like, wouldn't that be cool? And then I just put it in. Now, uh, one of the most powerful parts of the book is there's a scene where a character is given or is kind of considering whether to become a monster or not. And uh, one of the characters says, do you still want to be changed? Because if you really want this, you can't hate me if it turns out the way it doesn't turn out the way you want it. But we see a, a lot of times, I, I, I thought of this as being kind of, you know, a part of the narrative that, that you know, young, it's really cool that young people today feel much more comfortable with fluid ideas of gender and sexuality in ways that, that, when, that when, at least when I was growing up, there wasn't as much of that and so i thought this was a really powerful scene where where you were talking very seriously about the idea of yeah you may think it's cool to to be this other thing but like make sure you understand you know what what choice you're you're really making i thought that was a really powerful scene so any thoughts on that that part yeah you know i i've been watching um Actually, quite recently, yesterday, um, the Netflix, um, the third season of Sex Education on Netflix. I, I really like this show. It's a, it's high schoolers getting in touch with their sexuality. But, you know, one of the things that's like a big part of the show is just like um, fluidity, you know, of sexuality and representation and, and with a lot, a lot of empathy. And that's what I love about the show. And there's a scene where two people are you know, kind of deciding whether or not they're going to start a relationship. And one of them, you know, for the, you know, for the first two seasons is like a, you know, very, um, let's say very hetero, like cishet guy, you know, um, superstar of the, of the school. But he's, you know, he's, he's, he has this interest and attraction with this um, non-binary um, person. And, you know, they basically tell them like, you know, you do realize that if you, if we go further, this is going to be a queer relationship. And then it, that's the first time it dawns on him and you could see him like, what, you know, like, and he kind of, you know, gets, you know, he needs some time to process. Um, and, you know, the, you know, I've seen people talk about the monsters in this book as like, you know, an analogy for other forms of identity otherness. Um, in my mind, it's an intersectional identity marker so it's 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 just another thing that you can be in relation to all the other things you are and so being a being a queer monster is different than being you know a black monster being a rich monster is different than being a poor monster these things represent differently you know in the world um and you know it's one of those moments where um one person that has a very limited understanding of what it means to be a monster. They're trying to figure out what a monster is themselves. Um, Rebecca isn't from the monster world. You know, she's kind of been caught up in it. And she's talking to this other person that's interested in it. And she's, she's saying like, this thing has repercussions it carries. And if you, you have to think about the way it carries as well. It's not just the thing it's, it's, you know, it's cool if you want to be a monster to connect with your brother, but there's other things that are going to happen as a result of you being a monster that you have to think about. Um, there's ways that it complicates your life. Um, 
and that whole section is about how it complicates Rebecca's life. And so like, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, to me, it's, it's very intersectional. And it's one of those moments where I'm trying to like point to that intersectionality. So now here, here's a big one for this book, and I couldn't do this outside of spoilers because it's just like huge and spoilery. Like with the title, I want to talk about the scene where they have the the protest and the, and with the no gods, no monsters chant. And for those who don't know, um, you do a good job of explaining what I didn't need explained to me, <laughs> uh, uh, which is mm-hmm. that there's a phrase in the anarchist community and it goes back very far in the anarchist community which is no gods no masters but in this world like you said earlier there's gods throughout this book and what it what it makes really interesting is that you have the anarchist characters that are embracing the monsters as a part of this society however along with this fracture effect of of showing the monsters are here it also shows that the gods are here and that so the monsters are something that the anarchists want to to embrace but the challenge is is what else comes with that if i'm reading it if i'm reading this correctly um but this this was a really powerful scene in 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 the book and i, I i'm wondering um, narratively, like, you know, how, how did you get to this point in the story? Because uh, I, I love this scene, but th- th- am I reading this this dilemma correctly? <laughs> because that's, that's kind of where I saw it. Okay, well, okay, okay. Um, which scene? <laughs> Let me make sure I know which. Where they, um, uh, the man yells, no gods, no monsters, the crowd chants back. Chants oh, back. okay, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know the title of this book is is no it's saying that there's no there's none of these things that there actually are a lot of. <laughs> you know, like the book is like no gods, no monsters, and there's a ton of these things. Um it's more of like a, a ideological stance, it's like this idea of like um aboveness and belowness. And you know, um, and the reason why I felt like I needed to explain it in this case is because it's through this, this, you know, taking this, you know, old slogan, this very, you know, um, this slogan with a deep history and changing it to me, no gods, no monsters, it creates a new way of thinking about the slogan. The slogan is different now that it's, it's been changed in this way. And so it's this idea of, yes, there are monsters and yes, there are gods, though the people that are using that slogan don't know they're gods. Um, but we don't see them as gods and we don't see these people as monsters, right? Right, right. There's no one above anyone else and there's no one below anyone else. We're all, we're all the same on the same level and we need to treat each other accordingly. Despite all of the, the things that monsters bring, you know, monsters, you know, are, you know, some of them are long lived, some of them have actual, like really scary abilities. Um, but um, well, if we're going to, it's kind of like you know we sometimes have to it's it's insane that we still have to explain what the term black lives matter really means but there are times with people you have to really explain it to them and Mm -hmm. and and it's 
it's frustrating, but it, I think what in the context of this book, yeah, monsters is a is a thing that we're grabbing onto. We're we're saying like yeah, you know, but at the same time we're saying there we're not monsters really. We're not, and you're not really gods, right? Because we say the anarchists in this world say no no gods no masters, even though there's religious people everywhere and there's people who master over us at our jobs and things that we have to live with in the society right. so yeah i see where it comes from and i thought the title was brilliant um obviously um you can imagine me being me i found this book because i was scrolling through the recently purchased books of the library app and i saw the title and went whoa hey with nothing else <laughs> right because, that's great <laughs> yeah because I saw the title and I was like, okay, I got to see what this is about. I knew nothing else. Now I'll tell you, when I went into this book, I read the title, put the book on hold at the library and knew nothing, knew nothing. Went into it totally cold just because it was, so I was excited when I saw like the Le Guin references and the, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to get along with this author. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, but anyways, that's besides the point. I'm talking too much in this interview. I'm just so excited. No, I, I, I do want to comment on that because it's, to me, you know, it's it's cool and exciting that you're like, <laughs> these things are obvious. <laughs> because my 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 impulse is to under-explain everything. I also don't like a lot of, like, um, explaining things. And so I tend to, like, most often not say anything or, like, hint at it or have it be implied in the subtext and there's a few moments where either i like i had some a beta reader read it or i you know my editor was like maybe you should explain this a little bit more and i was like okay fine you know there's there's some places where i just kind of like i was like this is something i'll explain a little bit more there's things i you know it's all over the place um but you know there's also a few moments that I was just like I'm going to get dinged for this if I don't say it so I'm going to say it I this is the place to say it so here it is um but I I tend to really enjoy noticing a thing and being like oh that is a thing that you know and I was paying attention um but some readers you know one of the things that I know for a fact now it's very apparent is that some readers read this book and they're just like what the heck you know and um that has been, you know, quite an experience for me because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I just want you to know, I got a lot of it. I got a lot okay. of it. And I, and I think that, that, I think once this book finds the right readers, and, you know, one of the things about it is, is that we talked about how, like, every anarchist recommends the distant best. And the hope is that in 10 years, everyone will be saying, you know, anarchists will be saying, you got to read No Gods, No Monsters. I don't know about that. I, I, I feel I, I feel like a baby and everything. I, you know, those influences I wear pretty much on my sleeve, I, you know, and but th thank you for saying that. <laughs> well, I'm just saying from my perspective, I'm going to put yeah. that out there. Like I, you know, a bunch of my friends who are, you know, people I know from this act, from the activist organizing community, whether they consider themselves or anarchists or not, people who, for example, are, are fans of, of the dispossessed. Um, you know, they're all people that I tagged in my review saying like, hey, check out this book because I think, you know, that's, that's important. 
And what's cool is is that the dispossessed is getting um, uh, a fresh round of people appreciating. Um, and and uh, you know, the first interview I did for Dickheads was with Carrie Vaughn. Mm-hmm. She wrote a murder mystery called Bannerless, which is like the dispossessed with the murder mystery. So I, 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 I've, I've called that book uh, The Mayor of Easttown Meets the Dispossessed. Um, that is great. <laughs> yeah. And, That's um, great. Yeah, definitely should check that one out too. But, um, but it was funny when, um, and I told her that, and she was like, oh my God, I, that's how I'm pitching it to Hollywood from now on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that now we're getting this, we're getting like a whole generation of writers that were influenced by that book who are paying it forward with their own versions of it's not to say that bannerless is exactly like um the just possessed it's a post-apocalyptic novel so it has a totally different thing but it's it has it takes place in an anarchist california after the fall of you know climate change future and and it and it presents these ideas that liquid was doing in another setting and what you're doing is the same kind of thing. You have a lot of these like themes and ideas, and uh, a lot. And it's just cool to see this next generation. I think it's it's great because I think the book like that, um, you know, uh, having all these tentacles out there in, in, in fiction is great. All right, so um, thank you, thank you, appreciate that. <laughs> so we have in the end of the. Story, and I know I kind of brought this up already with the with the meeting, but the safe space thing seems to be like a huge theme of the book. But what, what, what we're leaning towards at the end here is that we're setting up book two, and you were obviously conscious when you were writing this that you were building towards, you know, kind of a hook towards the future. How well, how was writing that hook at the end, um, and, and how did you? Hmm. Okay, that was a big question. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. No, that's just that's just me kind you know, stewing. So, you know, it's I I think I approached it the same way I approached most of the book is I was just like, what what would intuitively work? What feels right? You know, what amount of balances and kind of balances would work here? And um, you know, when I approached the ending, I was like, I knew I knew I wanted it to end where it began with a certain POV. I knew I wanted to make certain connections um, for the reader, you know, and if and if the reader, depending on where this reader is coming from, they will get excited about different things in the ending. You know, there's there's some connections to to um, you know, I, I definitely consider the lesson in No Gods, No Monsters, Sister books. And so there's some things there that people will, you know, find satisfying. Um and then there's some, you know, you know, peeing off that lap, that POV and having that POV hit up against a thing like this, this cat that shows up earlier in the story um, was also a thing that I wanted to um, to finish out or you know make that larger connection. And then there's this there's this being that shows up in the you know in this person in this person's room, you know Cal's room. I'll just say his name. Why not? Um, and 
and um that connects back to the barn scene and that connects back to some other things and so you there's there's all of these different beings and things that have made appearances in other parts of the book or hinted at in other parts of the book that are hit that are confirmed in this last scene but the last scene is actually really quiet it's um it's just guy can't sleep you know takes his niece on a drive you know it's basically that's how it ends um but there's all of these things that i'm just kind of like you know you know subtly to my mind you know pointing to or confirming um and so, yeah. Yeah, no, it, 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 I, I can tell you that I hadn't looked to see that, that this was a series before. So remember, I told you all I knew was the title when mm-hmm. I started reading. So when I was getting towards the end of the book, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going on. This is continuing. This, the, 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 I'm going to get more of this. <laughs> and I was very excited about that. So I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, um, just to kind of wrap up the spoiler section, what um, what do you think was your your biggest narrative challenge in writing this book, and what do you think was the part that came together the easiest? Um, and uh, and and think of that in ways of how you could relate that to young writers that might be listening for uh, for for advice. Okay. Okay. So, you know, you know, when I when I wrote the book and I was thinking about the series name, it was it was No Gods No Monsters, No Gods No Monsters One. So the the whole series is called No Gods No Monsters. The first book is called No Gods No Monsters. But we talked about it and we thought, you know, I talked about it with a publisher and they thought and I agree that it was confusing. <laughs> so we, you know, we we went through a bunch of different names. I listed a bunch of names that I thought would do different things, you know, the, 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 um, the series name. I was like, if you pick this series name, it implies these things. If you pick this series name, it implies these things. My personal favorite is this one. And we kind of fell on the Convergence Saga as um, a good name because it prepares you for what happens in the book. And in my mind, it compares you for what happens in the series. You know, there's, there's a lot of different players and they're coming from different completely different contexts and they're joining, you know, they're coming together. And that was hard to do, <laughs> you know, like, right. you know, that I had to make, make it all make sense. Like, why is Cal here? And why is this person here? And why, why does um, Abyssia show up? And who is this cat God? And why does she, why is she here? And all of these things needed to make sense. And that was hard to do. And I, you know, I came up with a structure of, you know, Cal POV, new person's POV, new person, new person, then Cal. Like it, it was three parts in threes. And so that helped me, the structuring. Um, but I still had to make all of this come together in a way that would feel like every section led into the next section. And a lot of that isn't like like um timeline a lot of that is like thematic things or or do you think that those of us who grew up on serialized television right or those of us who've been the last 10 years watching so much serialized television have a have a better grasp of how to build these long narratives because we you know we're watching you know like 
I still to this day think like for example Battlestar Galactica the reboot is like a masterclass in how to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Story, right and so for those of us who like really got into those shows it's like now I think we can think longer term of these things coming together I don't know maybe right no 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 I think you're right because you know definitely there was two conceptual things that helped me when I was designing the book um, I thought of it as, you know, like, like a, like an album, you know, but the, you know, an album that is thematically related, but each song is different. So it's like a track list and the, each song is different. But if you listen to the album in order, you get a thematic cohesiveness. You know, I, I think that, you know, albums aren't always that now, but, you know, growing up albums were these kinds of whole things that you listen to from beginning to end and it told it told a whole story you know there's a lot of hip-hop influences as well in the book so like playing around with that as well um and i also thought of it as a tv show you know so i was like here's here's episode one that introduces a certain thing here's episode two that introduces a certain thing and if you're watching these stories these episodes in order it might be disorienting for a bit, but they all just come back to this central idea. It's 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 like a, in some ways, an anthology series meets something like, um, you know, a, a good example of this is The Leftovers, which I'm a huge fan of. But it's each ep- episode is focused on a character, but it pushes along this overarching narrative. Okay, so what's the part that came together the easiest? Hmm. Um. I think the, the 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 horror, it was something that was surprisingly easy for me to get to, you know, even though I, um, you know, until I would say relatively recently did not write horror, but it, you know, it wasn't, and I, I, and when I was writing it, I didn't think of it as horror, which I think helped, you know, some people are creeped out by certain moments in the book, but in my mind, I wasn't like trying to be, I wasn't trying to write horror and I felt I would be intimidated if I thought of it that way. I just wanted things to be unnerving, you know? So like um, well, that they're, they're came together. In my review, I, I pointed out two parts that I thought were really great moments of horror that um, one was with the earth shaking and one of the monsters and the other one was the skin shutter part that I thought were really, really, really great moments of horror. So, um, you know, on Thank my you. own, I, I agree with you already. So. <laughs> appreciate that <laughs> appreciate that thank you yeah so uh, is there any lessons that you would have you wish that you had known before you started that this this process like you know always yeah yeah that's, that's <laughs> no 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 i i do want to i'll answer it because it's it's one of those things where you know i think there was a thing that i understood to some degree when I was a reader of other people's work that now I understand much better now as a writer is that nothing's done and that so much of what what comes together in a book is is based on like outside context like a book isn't a book by itself even though I think that people tend to treat books as if they like exist in a vacuum it was a really weird year to write this book. And a lot of that came into the book. Um, 
Yeah. A lot of that influenced the book. And even now when I reread the book, I'm like, there's things that I think are better because it happened during this time. And then there's things that I would have done differently, you know, if I was in a different, more stable time. And, you know, books are like that. And it's, um, I feel like I'm learning that with this new book that, you know, the second book in the trilogy, I'm just like, I had an idea of what I thought was going to work and it's not. And then I let go of it and now things are working. And it's it's one of those things that is, is always surprising. It's what you think a story needs and what ends up being the story is different. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's a great feeling when, when you get to, you know, people will say a lot of times like that writers are motivated by seeing the book in print. And I think they're more motivated by those moments when, when everything comes together creatively. That's absolutely true. Yeah. That, that's right. absolutely true. That's way, that's way better feeling. It's like when you solve the problem narratively and, and you're moving forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Longer I, I, lasting, uh, I think. Yeah. I have a, the novel I wrote during lockdown was one I'd been planning for five years. And it was, it became so much more about partisanship than I ever than I ever planned because of the times when we were writing it. And what's funny too is I had an experience, I love telling this story, that I had written a scene where a character went into a store where there was no food on the shelves because everyone was writing and freaking out. And I had outlined that scene five years earlier. And two days before I wrote that scene, we were in lockdown and I went to the grocery store at some point to try and just get some food or whatever and the pasta aisle was completely empty except for one box or one row of of kale pasta kale based pasta was on the shelf and <laughs> i had written that i had written the outline for the scene five years earlier and just he went to the shelves and they were completely barren and because five years later i was i was in lockdown now the novel has the kale pasta on the shelf <laughs> by itself because I lived it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The yeah. world is so strange. Oh man. Wow. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not anti-kale pasta. I just uh, you know, I'm just saying that was an experience that I had. And uh writing during twenty twenty was was a thing, you know? Right. <laughs> The kale pasta makes sense because, you know, a lot of people wouldn't go for it. Um, but and it's it's one of those details that makes a, a scene come alive. You know, again, also no nothing against like no knock on on kale pasta. But it's it is a thing that if it if something remained, it would remain. And that that like gives a life to a scene that yeah. and that was gifted to you by reality. It's weird how many conversations I had with spec people about you know, the pandemic subgenre, you know, like the, 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 either the pandemic that's happening and the world is kind of reeling from it or the post-apocalyptic like pandemic story and how looking at how reality matches the genre and doesn't match the genre was really interesting. It was just this surreal moment where spec and reality was the same. <laughs> I mean, is the same. Um, and it's just, it's just wild. It definitely this time influenced the novel in ways that I could not have anticipated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, 
I don't know. Like, I think this one combats very well in the final stage. That one is my favorite. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, well, I took up a great amount of your morning, and I, uh, I really appreciate the time. I think my listeners will really enjoy hearing about this book, and it gives them another reason to go out and buy it, which is what I appreciate. Um, I'm looking forward to book two. What's the... Um, uh, are you working on it currently, or... Um, yeah. I am. I am. I've gotten people, um, <laughs> no pressure, right? I've gotten people like, okay, I'm ready. Where is it? <laughs> I've gotten a few people like that. And I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm very excited that people have had that response. That makes me very happy. Um, it's due, it's due soon. So like, I'm, I'm working on it. It's kicking my butt, but it's due soon. It's not too far off, but books, you know, book time is, you know, there's going to be, you know, some space between this one and the next one, but hopefully it'll be, you know, a good wait. And what the second book will do well. About book two, or, uh, Dune part two, like having to wait for it. It's like, you understand that the majority of the life of that movie, you will, you will have both. You just have to be patient and wait, you know, so mm-hmm. people are just used to getting everything really quick. Um, yeah, I've just got the the last book of the Expanse, and it's just like you, you, you just the book world is different. Even and the Expanse was like, you know, um, James, um, is it James I say Corey? Um, they've been pretty on time with their deadlines. You know, the books have come out pretty steadily over the years, but you still have to wait like a year or a year and a half. This one was a little bit longer of a wait, and you know that's books. <laughs> You know, like that's just how it how it works. And so I, I think if you if you are a person that reads books and reads series, you know, th- through novels, I think it prepares you for for film. You, you, you're kind of like, oh, OK, I can win a year whatever. You know, like that's a year sounds like a short period of time. It's like the, the Avengers one and two Infinity War. And, you know, um, now I'm forgetting all titles. This is weird. Endgame. And I was like, this this was like a blink and it was there, <laughs> you know, like people were so frustrated. I was just like, I can wait. This is, I think this is fine. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, all right. Uh, no Gods, No Monsters is available wherever uh, buy books, I'm sure. Uh, people can find it. Um, the lesson uh, I'm looking forward to reading uh, once it's out there in... Um, uh, hopefully, um, I'll have you back for book two. That is the plan. I, I, uh, very excited. Hit me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very excited to read it. Uh, is there anything else you want to leave my listeners with? Uh, no, I, you know, just, I'm just grateful that, you know, you invited me on and thank you so much. And, um, yeah, if you, if you, if any of you are short fiction readers, I do write short fiction as well. If you want to, like, try out something shorter before you invest in a book. Um, this I have a ton of short fiction out there that you could check out. Awesome. Yeah, Kevin, well, thanks for joining us. And uh, um, yeah, report back to us on, on what you think of uh, Clive Barker, because I, uh, I think you'll really enjoy it, especially Cabal. Yeah. OK, that's the first one I'm going to. So yeah, thank that, you. That, you a, <laughs> thank you for that, Rick. Yeah, that, that is like a sister book for, for a similar theme. 
right. Awesome. Uh, thanks for joining me, and uh, I'll uh, we'll be in touch. All right. All right. Hopefully soon.